G'day, you're with Scotty, you're listening now to Behind the Lines, thanks to Finton for a great show there this morning, and today we're going to be talking to Anna from the Earthworker Cooperative uh, Manufacturing Plant, um, or the Earthworker Cooperative, who has recently just established a manufacturing plant under the uh, Eureka's Future label uh, in Dandenong in Melbourne, so we'll be having a good yarn all about uh, owning your own work and uh, why why they're doing what they're doing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Um, right, now you're from uh, the Earthworker Cooperative. In uh, Are you based in Melbourne? Yeah, at the moment we are. Yeah, okay. Can you explain just a touch about the uh, about the cooperative, just the, uh, the elevator version? Sure. Um, so the Earthworker Cooperative... A is aiming to set up an Australia-wide network of worker-owned cooperatives in sustainable industries. Yeah, okay. So I guess um, worker-owned, um, we can get into the, uh, the ownership side of it. Uh, what is it that uh, is about the, the current sort of normal ownership patterns that, um, that uh, I guess is uh, not working too well at the moment? Um, I guess, I mean, one of our big aims is, is job creation, but like secure, dignified, sustainable jobs. Um, and like in a, a typical business, you know, you're always going for the product profits. So, you know, what you pay your workers, whether you decide to offshore those jobs, whether you decide to cut corners with you know, environmental standards or sustainability. Um, that's always, you know, driven according to profits. So it's really hard for typical businesses and corporations, you know, in a, under a capitalist system um, to maintain really good standards for both for workers and environmental standards. Yeah, right. So, do you see a link there in between the uh, the workers being treated shabbily and the uh, the rest of the world being treated shabbily? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, it's it's all about driving down costs in whatever way you can. So, whatever resources you can exploit, and you know, it's clear that in our current way of looking at things, humans are just another resource to exploit in terms of their labour. Hmm. Yeah. So, so what is it that uh, I guess both yourselves and and the the corporate guys are owning? What what is what is the guts of this business thing? <laughs> uh, you know, we can go with we're owning the means of production. Um, yeah. Have a crack at it. Yeah. I guess you know, in a in a very real sense, it's it's owning the. The intellectual property and the, the the ideas, as well as the physical, um, you know, the assets of a business that you can then use in whatever way you choose. Yeah, to conduct your business. Yeah. Okay, so I suppose if if the the traditional sort of capitalist system is that the the ownership of those things is just held by a few people. And uh, what, what's the difference with a worker-owned model? Well, in a traditional business, you know, you've got the bosses at the top and then you've got the shareholders who have no day-to-day -day interactions with that business. 
um, but they've put money in and they they get money from the profits out, um, even though they've got absolutely no connection to whatever it is that business is conducting or what it's producing. Uh, In a worker-owned cooperative, it's one member, one vote, and the only members are people who work in that cooperative. So it's tied entirely to that workplace and that local community. Um, Decisions in that factory or workplace, whatever sort of workplace it is, um, all the important decisions of that business are made solely by the people who work there. So you can still have outside investments through uh, debentures or cooperative capital units, but those people who put money in get no say in how that business is run. They get no vote. Yeah, right. So there's no uh, no sort of democracy there, eh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's about maintaining the kind of the integrity and the autonomy of that workplace. Yeah, so I suppose many of the... Uh, the criticisms I've heard of this sort of thing just off Joe Bloggs in the street are that, oh, well, you can't run it on a consensus model. That'll never work. It'll take forever to do anything. But how have you found it in practice? Well, I mean, like, there is definitely this idea that, you know, every worker-owned cooperative means that, you know, every decision is made by consensus, that every time anything has to be done, everybody sits down in a circle and, you know, talks about it for three hours before they do anything. Um that's not how it works in practice. Like at a, a very small workplace, you know, if you've got, you know, just five or six people, then maybe they might do that. Every decision gets discussed between them and they come up with a decision through consensus. Um, in larger cooperatives, like there's different structures that you can have. So you can still have management structures. It's just that those managers are elected by the workers. Um, or you might have working groups. So, you know, there's a... a occupational health and safety working group and there's a sales working group um, and those working groups are responsible for those decisions so they've got decision making power within that realm but they have to report back to the general meeting of workers um, so you can still be in some ways you know have a hierarchy that they might um, they might elect certain people for certain jobs they might elect a board to make certain decisions Um, And in a lot of worker-owned cooperatives, it's like uh, when they're working on a job, then, you know, they've got someone who's in charge and they will follow that person because in the field you you still need, you know, you need somebody to be able to make those quick decisions um, and you can't sit there for three hours having an argument (laughs) over whether we should, you know, put it like this or like that. Um, But then when they return to the office, you know, everybody's an equal and they get to talk about what they want to do next. Yeah, I suppose unlike a normal workplace, then when you get back to the office, you can actually have a yarn about um, the two different ways of doing things and, and yeah, exactly. sort it out for next time. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, interesting. So that's sort of, I guess, how, how if you've got investors in your worker-owned company, do they still have the votes that uh, comes with investing normally? No. So they have, they have no voting rights whatsoever. So, um, for example, with us, we uh, released debentures, which are like shares, um, but they've got no voting rights attached. So we've got a whole lot of debenture holders who have put in their money and they will get a return on that, um, but they still have no say in what happens in that business. We don't have, you know, an AGM where our shareholders come and get to vote and, you know, vote in the board and the directors. Um, they just 
you know, I mean, with us, they invested because they care about the project and they think that it can succeed, um, but they don't want to direct where it goes. Yeah, right. Well, that sounds, uh, sounds fairly appealing, really. Um, now, I guess the, uh, the, the corporation um, and, and many businesses otherwise have a... They sort of uh, invent a legal imaginary friend, the uh, the body corporate, pretty much. Um, do, do the worker-owned companies have their own imaginary friend or are they all individuals? Um, I mean a corporate structure, basically. I guess, well, so what, what we're trying to do with Earthworker is set up a whole network. So you've got all of the... The individual worker-owned cooperatives, which are, you know, autonomous within themselves, um, but then they're linked to a, sort of a peak body, I guess, a broader cooperative body um, that can facilitate new worker cooperatives and can, you know, assist with, like, uh, training and development um, and, you know, various other services like that. So in that sense, we we do have our our imaginary friend, I guess. Um, it's just starting up with us, um, but our model is uh, largely the Mondragon um, Corporation, they actually call it, unfortunately. It's a cooperative um, in the Basque Country in Spain, um, and that's the biggest, as far as I know, uh, network of cooperatives in the world. They've got something like 74,000 worker owners. Yeah, right. And what was it about the Mondragon Corporation that uh, appealed to you? Um, oh, I mean, it's. I guess it's the go-to example for a lot of cooperatives. It's been around since uh, 1956. Um, it's, you know, it's grown hugely. It's incredibly robust and resilient. Um, if you look at the way that Mondragon was able to weather the global financial crisis as opposed to other you know, traditional businesses in Spain. Um, like, they didn't lose a single worker-owner. Nobody, no one who was a worker-owner lost their jobs. They just shuffled them between their network of cooperatives. So if one business was folding, then they could move people into another one that was still doing okay. Um, and they're, yeah, I mean, they're incredibly successful. They're something like the seventh largest um, business in Spain at the moment. So, you know, they've been able to develop these really... Uh, successful and resilient cooperatives and they've also been able to develop a whole network of services around that. So they've got their own university, they've got healthcare, you know, it's like looking at not just a worker doing a job and they go to work and they, you know, work for eight hours and they go home, but looking at like a whole of life sort of thing. So being able to provide education and training, being able to facilitate uh, the purchase of housing, being able to provide health care, you know, so that it's not just like we pay you this much and then everything else is up to you, you deal with it. Um, it's actually wanting to support people and support local communities because cooperatives are often like quite firmly rooted in a particular local community and so enabling those communities to build up, you know, wealth and services and things that they need for that community to function. Yeah, right, and they've been going a long time, so that's a, a good proven model, eh? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, nice. Uh, are there any other models around the world that you've been looking at? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, worker co-ops 
are kind of a bit of a funny idea here in Australia. We don't have that many examples of them and certainly not any large examples of them. Um, but, you know, around the world, there's thousands of worker co-ops um, and there are some, you know, quite large examples. Uh, we've been looking recently at Evergreen in the United States. Uh, so they've got a, a network of, I think it's currently three um, worker-owned cooperatives connected together uh, in Cleveland, in Ohio. Um, and they're also very much looking at, like, uh, training and housing and healthcare for their worker owners. So they've managed to get a huge proportion of their worker owners into houses that they own. Um, and they've done that through partnerships with local governments and with what they call anchor institutions, so uh, universities and hospitals and stuff. So working with, um, yeah, big institutions that are providing services and that aren't going to leave that community and, you know, using that relationship to build up the network and to build up what you can provide to your worker owners. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's, there's plenty of other examples around. That's just one that, that shares kind of some similarities with what we're trying to do. Um, there's also a green worker cooperative network um, also in the United States. I think that one's based in the Bronx, and they are also specifically looking at um, environmental sort of cooperatives. Yeah, right. So um, I guess those anchor institutions you were talking about there in, in Spain, in the Basque country, the Mondragon Co-op Corporation itself has become one of those, really, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I think it, it has very much. I mean, as I said, they've got their own university. Um, you know, you can do a uh, an MBA in cooperatives um, at that university. Like, yeah, it's, it's really like they're very much... Uh, a fixture of the region. Um, you know, Mondragon, you go to the, the, the town and there's just like, it's just dominated by these cooperatives, I guess. Yeah, right. So how, I guess that's just on a regional scale or is that sort of throughout the whole nation of Spain? Um, I mean, Mondragon is mostly based in, in the Basque country. It's got a lot of connections with a a quite strong Basque identity, um, but, you know, they're present all over Spain. They do have uh, factories outside of Spain, though I think most of those are not yet worker-owned cooperatives, but they have been trying to work towards turning all of those factories into co-ops themselves. Um, I know, for example, they've uh, had discussions with the United Steelworkers in the United States to, you know, talk about the, the possibility of, like, um, manufacturing worker-owned cooperatives so much like what we're trying to do um, and basing them in, in the US where they've got some uh, some factories already. Yeah, right. So to bring it back home, I guess, um, how do you see the uh, the smaller sort of individual businesses fitting in with a larger structure like that here in Australia? Well, I think, like, you know, on the one hand, it's it's difficult for one small cooperative by itself uh, to be competitive, you know, and to to function really ethically and really well um, in a, a capitalist system, you know, dominated by profit-driven businesses. Um, but a network of cooperatives is much more resilient and it's, it's able to, to do things that 
a normal business can't. So looking at, you know, collectivizing production and also collectivizing consumption, um, finding new markets for products, um, you know, setting up support systems so that, you know, if one co-op is having a hard time that you're able to help that co-op to build itself up again or you're able to find new work for, for the people who work there. I think, you know, it's also important to be connected to the movements that we've got. So that's why we've got such a strong basis in uh, the organised labour movement. So, like, a lot of relationships with trade unions, you know, we've also got a big relationship with the, the environmental and green movement um, because, you know, you can't have a healthy tree in a burning forest, you know. I think <laughs> for us it doesn't seem it doesn't seem logical to try and just build up one co-op and then leave it there and then another one over here and have them all distinct and totally separate entities. Um, you need those connections for it to be really successful, I think. Yeah, right. So how important is communication in that sort of model? Oh, I mean, very important. The, you know, the model that we're trying to set up, um, every worker co-op would have representatives on the the umbrella co-op, I guess you could call it. So every worker co-op will send somebody to that, you know, and they'll also send a, a percentage of profits once they're profitable um, will go to that co-op and so then the workers from all of the worker co-ops will then decide how that is used to build up services or to set up new worker co-ops, um, yeah, as a, as a support system. But it's, it's only... The only decision-makers in that body are people who are worker owners in a worker co-op. Hmm. So, again, folks like myself who, you know, uh, I'm not a worker owner, I just volunteer for Earthworker and, and do a lot of work for them, I wouldn't actually get a vote there because I'm more a delegate of the movement. I'm doing what needs to be done for it, but I don't decide where it goes. Yeah, right. Okay. So I guess that... Uh bad segue there now here in canberra we, we've got a local food cooperative down the road where uh, a bunch of people are members and they do a little bit of volunteering every now and then to, to get their food um what's the difference between that sort of sort of concept which is fairly common and well known in australia and the uh, the worker owned concept yeah so there's a whole lot of different kinds of cooperatives um so the, a food co-op is a, a members co-op or like or a consumer co-op. Um, so they're pretty well known in Australia as are agricultural cooperatives. So, you know, we've, some, we've got some of the big like uh, dairy co-ops and, and other agricultural producer co-ops. Um, in a, a consumer co-op, so like the food co-op, you become a member as somebody who's going to purchase that food and you give a bit of time and you get a discount on your fruit and veg and whatever. Um so the decision makers are the people who are consuming that product. Um, the people who work there are not actually in charge of that business. Um, so it's yeah, it's a bit of a, a different system. Um, and as you said, it is fairly. It's much more common to have that sort of cooperative in Australia than a worker-owned cooperative. Um, you know, ideally, you have all these different kinds of cooperatives that can work together. You know, we've also got. Uh, cooperative housing in Australia, so 
you know, groups getting together to um, purchase land or create, you know, co-housing. Um, all of those different sorts of co-ops can be parts of the one ecosystem in which everybody, you know, is working cooperatively together to support each other. Yeah, right. Well, I guess on that note, there, there's a whole lot of existing stuff going on that's actually quite decent in the business world. What are the sort of businesses you'd be likely to, to sort of consider linking up with in a, in a business way that aren't co-ops? Um, I mean, we've got, we've got partnerships with a number of small businesses. Um, you know, we tend to form partnerships with small Australian businesses, um, nothing too large or multinational we've had we have had some relationships with bigger corporations in the past that have maybe not turned out so well um a lot of our partnerships at the moment are kind of rooted in in our broader vision of expanding our network so um businesses that are producing things like solar hot water systems that will enter into an arrangement where for the time being, we'll purchase their solar hot water systems. But when we uh, when we have grown enough that we can, you know, open more worker co-ops, we'll actually take on the manufacture of those um, products. So that's what a lot of our, our current relationships are based on, and that's how our factory in Dandenong, um, which is becoming the Eureka's Future Workers Cooperative, that's how that came about um, through just a a long-standing partnership with a, a small Australian manufacturer. Yeah, right, nice one. Well, that, that can obviously pay off, eh? Yeah. Yeah, so what was it that made Earthworker decide to enter the, the sort of um, the world of cooperative business in the manufacturing sector? I guess Earthworker, as an idea, has been around for about 17 years now. Um, there's been a few people kind of chipping away at it slowly and trying to get this idea off the ground. Uh, our history is quite firmly rooted in kind of left social movements, I guess. Uh, we've got a, you know, our founders, some of them are, have come straight out of the trade union movement. So, you know, uh, very strong ideas of, of a worker being able to choose where their labour goes and, and choose what sort of, of projects their labour contributes to, um, you know, we've got organisers who were part of the, the Green Bands of the Builders Labourers Federation in the 70s. Uh, so looking at that connection, how organised labour and environmental movements can work together. Um, but I guess, you know, a lot of it also is just the, the imminence of climate crisis, looking around and say, seeing, you know, the environmental changes that are taking place seeing the, the pace at which our environment is degrading and realising that there's not time to wait for government and capitalism and big business to fix things, you know? It's not the way that it works. They're not going to turn around tomorrow and be like, actually, you know what? We're going to do everything we can to save the environment. So it's, it's really an idea that as workers... You know, we have the power of our labour and we can put that towards the things that we want to happen. Um, so rather than, 
you know, as in a green ban where you're saying, well, I'm not going to demolish this parkland because I think it, it should stay there. You're saying, well, okay, I've got this labour and I'm going to build something that's going to help our environment. Um, yeah, so instead of, you know, removing yourself from a destructive project, actually actively working towards something that could help. Mm, well, that sounds ingenious, really, and very obvious too, I suppose, but... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the obvious things can often be the hardest to see, can't they? Um, how how would, um, I guess, yeah, there's two big sort of earth-related problems that we've got to sort of acknowledge, and one you've just mentioned, the, the degradation of the environment and climate change looming and stuff, but the other one's sort of... Uh, energy descent, I guess it's been termed. It's peak oil, and, and the fact that all of this energy we're using is... is not likely to hang around. How are the co-ops going to deal with that? I guess one of our one of the areas that we focus on, and you know, one of our big sort of motivators is this idea of just transitions. So, looking at looking at our energy systems, looking at communities that are currently reliant on, you know, for example, the coal industry um, for their jobs, for their livelihoods, um, and trying to facilitate those communities being able to move out of destructive industries and move into more environmentally friendly ones. So, you know, we think that obviously our coal, fire power, our coal power stations need to close and they need to close soon, but at the same time we need to be building alternatives both for our energy systems and also for those communities that are currently dependent on those power stations for their livelihoods. Um, yeah, I guess we feel that, like, if we can provide alternatives and, like, real, tangible, solid alternatives, so our, uh, our factory in Dandenong that produces tanks for solar hot water systems, for example, the next step in that project is to expand into Morewell, which is in the Latrobe Valley here in Victoria, which is a, a major brown coal area, um, and is heavily dependent on uh, coal mining and coal-fired power stations. So we want to put a manufacturing industry into that area that's producing things like solar hot water uh, in the long term, you know, uh, producing our wind turbines and our, you know, our renewable energy infrastructure, which we can and should be producing here in Australia. If we can put that factory in that area so that folks can see, okay, here's an alternative, we actually do have other options, you know, and people will help us with those options, you know, for jobs to support our communities so that, you know, the power stations don't just close and everybody just ups and leaves because they've got no other choice. Um, you know, we really believe that that will hasten and help shift this movement away from our quite terribly polluting current energy system. Mm, yeah, I guess that reminds me of one of the things that got me thinking along these lines years and years ago was I was blockading in a forest out near Cooma somewhere and uh, the contractor asked me, well, what am I supposed to do? I was like, well, I don't know. And people were saying, tourism, tourism. It's like, oh, yeah. no, surely there's got to be something better than that. I guess, uh... Yeah, well, exactly. Like, you know, that, that line of thinking gets thrown around so much. You know, there's this, like 
jobs versus environment dichotomy that has been built up over years, you know, possibly quite intentionally by certain <laughs> political parties or others, um, you know, that, that feed us this line that environmentalists are against jobs and they're against working people and, you know, the only way to protect the environment is to get rid of jobs and, you know, abandon communities. And we've been fed this line and most people have swallowed it, you know. It, it's something that you come across time and time again, you know, as you said, as a, as a greenie, you know, blockading or campaigning. Um, you know, these communities just look at you and they're, they're immediately like, oh, you, you're going to hurt my family, you're going to hurt my community. Yeah, you're a threat rather than an opportunity, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, community obviously is going to be a, a fair part of what you're doing. How do you envisage the, the co-ops to fit into, say, the local or the, the larger community? I guess, you know, part of it is just that if you've got a workplace that is owned by those workers in a particular area, in a particular local community, that workplace is not going to just one day, you know, shut up shop and leave, or it's not going to turn around one day and be like, actually, you're all fired, we're going to hire, you know, we're going to set up a, a factory in, in the Philippines or, you know, in China um, because we can pay them less. That's not going to happen because the people making the decisions are those workers. So it means that the wealth created by that business stay in that local community. You know, they're not sending profits offshore, they're not sending profits to, you know, shareholders wherever they may be located um everything produced you know financially by that that business is either going to the workers themselves it's being reinvested into the business or it's being put towards um you know social causes like they might have an education fund or they might have a healthcare fund or you know um it might be for like social justice work so providing solar hot water to low-income houses, which is something that Earthworker Cooperative is doing. Um, so I guess, like, in that way, the co-op is supporting the community and the community will then support the co-op. You know, they will do what they can to make that co-op a success because it's, it's beneficial to them. Yes, cooperation beget cooperation, I suppose. <laughs> yes. Um... Yeah, so the, uh, the the institutions that you're thinking of in the future, say the, the university or the, uh, the research institution, will they be open to the, the general public, maybe a, a hospital or something? <laughs> um, unfortunately, that's still like a long way off. So I can't really... <laughs> like, I can't really enough, comment yeah. on specific. Um, <laughs> Haven't done yeah. a detailed plan for that yet. <laughs> Not quite. You know, we're we're getting there. We're trying to iron out all our our structures for the next, you know, probably five years or so. But unfortunately, this project is slow. It's one step at a time. You know, as we kind of borrowed the phrase from from Mondragon, we build the road as we travel. Um, you know, we respond to things as they come up and we create the structures that we need as we need them. Yeah. So I guess another thing that a, your traditional sort of big bad corporation type of outfit has is uh, the concept of externalities. Um, 
do the co-ops deal with externalities? Or? I guess I should explain to the listener that an externality is basically anything that doesn't make you money. <laughs> so it's all the bads that are produced alongside the goods. Yep. Ideally, you know, each co-op would be looking at the whole life cycle of the products that it's producing, looking at its supply chain and trying to, you know, account as much as possible for those things, um, you know, where it sources its material, you know, any labour that takes place, like, outside of that workplace, how that happens. Um, yeah, you know, in, in an ideal situation, that would all be accounted for in that workplace and in that product. Um, that's a slow process. Uh, you know, it's, it's a process that we're just starting with the, the co-ops that we've got, you know, beginning to look at supply chain and, and that whole life cycle sort of approach, um, which can be quite difficult in the system that we've got. You know, as you said, it's not set up to do that. You're meant to just, like, be like, cool, I'm ordering this thing and I get the materials over here and, you know, someone else made that component over there, but that doesn't matter because it just matters how much I pay for them now and how much I can sell it for later. Um, yeah, so it can actually be a really slow and difficult process to try and bring those things in. Yeah, yep, I reckon it would be. Um, so how how's it getting, um, getting paid for? Um, of course, to set up a business, you do need some funding from somewhere. You mentioned some uh, debentures. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess one of the reasons that this project has taken so long to get off the ground um, is that issue of capital. Um, you know, we've had discussions with something like three successive governments, you know, and then something else comes up or there's a, a change in government or, you know, who knows, and then they decide, actually, we're not going to give you the money that we said that we would. Um so, you know, we've learnt not to rely on governments. We can't assume that they're going to give us the money or that they're going to fix these problems. So we've taken a much more grassroots approach in the last few years, uh, really trying to just build this up from the ground with our supporters and our networks and our communities. So we had, uh, we had a crowdfunding campaign in the middle of last year in which... We, you know, we kind of got to a, a bit of a crisis moment of, you know, we need money, a, a pot of money in the short term to kick things off um, for the mutualisation of the factory in Dandenong. And so we had a crowdfunding campaign that in the space of two weeks raised $78,000, um, mostly just from, you know, people within our networks. There was a couple of bigger donations um, from a few unions and stuff, but mostly it was just, you know, people who cared um, chucking in for that crowdfunding campaign, which was massive um, and kind of really showed that there was a lot of support for this and that people are really ready for these solutions to be, you know, they, they want creative solutions, they want tangible solutions and they want them happening now. Um, we followed that up with over the last... Oh, nine months or so, um, we've been seeking investment to finish the buyout of the factory in Dandenong, uh, so through debentures, which, as I mentioned, it's a form of share with no 
voting rights attached. Um, so we did three rounds of, of debentures uh, beginning at the very end of last year and then the last one finished up about a, a month ago. Um, and through those debentures, we attracted over just over $500,000 of investment, um, which was the, the money that we needed to complete the buyout of that factory. So the factory in Dandenong that was Everlast Hydro Systems producing um, stainless steel tanks for hot water systems is now right in the middle of a transition to Eureka's Future Workers Cooperative. Um, and that was very much just through supporters, through drawing on those movements that we're a part of, so drawing on the environmental movement and the, the organised labour movement, you know, and saying to people, like, we're, we're this close, you know, we can do this, we can have this happening, you know, within the next year. We just need a little, little bit of funding. Um, and it was mostly just small investors, you know. We didn't, we didn't get money from banks. We didn't get money from superannuation funds. Um, it was just folks like us, you know, mums and dads and grandmas and, you know, people down the street chucking in $1,000, $5,000. Yeah, you know, we had a couple of of bigger investments, um, you know, up to like a couple of 10 or or 20 or 30,000, but almost all of it was just very small investment um, from people who really want to see this project succeed, which was amazingly heartening for us. Um, yeah, well, that sort of fits right in with the whole uh, the whole idea of distributed ownership, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so are you thinking of sort of continuing that model of borrowing if you need it or, or are you planning to be a lot more self-sufficient as, as the co-ops continue? Um, you know, ideally in, in the future uh, we won't need to borrow money, Um you know, as I said, once a cooperative becomes profitable, then it will give a, a proportion of its profits will go to a fund that can then be used to set up new worker-owned cooperatives. Um, but we wouldn't expect that until a cooperative is, like, very firmly on its feet, I guess. So, you know, we're still setting up those systems to take place in the long term. Um, we've also been running the last few years the 100,000 Australians campaign, so asking Australians to join up as members of the Earthworker Cooperative, which is kind of the support cooperative, um, so it's a members co-op. So just, you know, paying in $22, $66 um, to become a member of that co-op, and then that's another pool of resources that we can draw on to support our worker-owned co-ops as they start up. Um, but yeah, we're still developing these systems and, you know, unfortunately we don't have a large capital base to draw on yet. Yeah, right. Huh? Well, as you say, slowly, slowly, it seems to be coming together. Yeah, yeah. definitely. We're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think? I mean, once this does get up and running, because you're going so slowly, it's definitely going to work. So once you do get a number of workplaces up and running and say you've got a town with a few 
a few different co-ops worker-owned and worker-managed running in it. What do you what do you think the, the democratic culture that's going to come out of those workplaces will do to the politics of, say, a small town? I mean, you know, I would love to say that people will become empowered, you know, they'll, they'll realise that they've got a say in both the political and economic life of their community and so, you know, they'll grow from that. You know, it has been seen in the past that where you've got a lot of sort of democratic systems and like like cooperatives starting up that people will become more militant. Um, I heard just the other day I was down in Wonsaggy in Victoria uh, and they had a whole network of cooperatives through most of the 20th century, so starting up in the early 1900s around the coal mine that was started there. You know, they had friendly societies and mutuals and they had a cooperative store, they had a, um, a cooperative theatre, a cooperative pharmacy, um, a cooperative hospital, you know, all of these interlinked co-ops. Um, and that made the town really vibrant. So they were able to weather unemployment and recessions um, and also, you know, were much more willing to take industrial action to stand up for their rights in their workplaces because... They had this whole support network um, and they knew that they had power that they could use as a community. But, you know, we'll see. <laughs> we will. We will. <laughs> oh, one thing I missed when we were just yarning about the, uh, the funding and the finance and stuff, one of the things that Mondragon did early on was to create its own um, credit union, essentially. Are there any plans for that in the wings? Um. I guess at the moment we've been working with, uh, I was about to say Bank MECU, but it's now Bank Australia, um, which is a cooperatively owned bank with the members' own bank. Um, and they, you know, they have provided support to us at times. Um, yeah, so I guess for the moment we're just working with the, the credit unions and, and, you know, cooperative banks that we already have. Um, you know, we're, as I said, a, a ways off yet setting up our own financial institutions. Um, but we're also looking at, in the long term, stuff like superannuation, you know, where you've got huge pools of resources that are, you know, they belong to the workers, they were earned by the workers, Um and possibly being able to work with some of the superannuation funds or set up self-managed super for our workers so that that's another way of, you know, safeguarding savings and using those resources um, to set these systems up. Yeah. I guess um, some of the more innovative businesses around the globe are using ideas like the patterns from nature that they can apply to their business. Are you guys thinking of, of trying or copying any particular things that you find in the natural world or organisationally? Um, I haven't really thought about that, I have to say. Ah, right. <laughs> I guess, you know, I used the metaphor before of you can't have a healthy tree in a burning forest. So in a broad sense, you know, we kind of look at things as an ecosystem um, rather than everything as an individual and believing that that can function by itself um, 
yeah, I think we're very aware that, like, you need a healthy ecosystem. You need a whole lot of things going on around you that work together, not against each other. Um, yeah. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Um, right, well, I think we are going to have a listen to Mr. David Rovix and then we'll come back and chat a little bit more. Great. Uh, you've been listening to Anna from Earthworker. What's your last name, Anna? I never did find out. <laughs> Boddenberg. Anna, Anna Boddenberg. Boddenberg from Earthworker. Cool, we'll be back shortly. Okay, you're on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM and I'm hoping that Anna is still with us. Yes. Excellent. That's such good news after this morning's hijinks. Um, how do people get in touch with uh, with Earthworker if, if they've been listening to this and thinking that, hey, that sounds like a good idea? Um, well, we've got our website, earthworkercooperative.com.au. Uh, it's got more info about us and you can become a member online there or, um, yeah, just send us an email or get on our mailing list. Uh, we are also, of course, on Facebook. If you look for Earthworker Cooperative. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. Um, and say people uh, are thinking, well, you know, maybe starting up one of these co-ops sounds like a good idea, but I'm not in Melbourne. Can you do anything to help them? Yeah. So, you know, obviously at the moment we, we've got most of our organisers in Melbourne, um, but definitely looking outwards so for example there's a group in the hunter valley that are looking at setting up a, an earthworker cooperative um you know another coal region obviously that would very much like to have alternatives um so you know if you're interested if you've got ideas um if you've got people you want to work with um get in touch for sure you know we're we're definitely not exclusive to melbourne or victoria even um, we've had discussions even with a cooperative in Argentina um, looking at long-term partnering, you know, providing our co-ops to them and then providing their co-ops to us, um, you know, sharing of, of ideas and resources um, across borders. So everybody is welcome. Yeah, cool. Nice. So I guess the one thing that I did miss before was... Um setting up a low-cost life. I mean, you, you mentioned a few things that sort of lead to this, like the um, the fact that it's quite hard to compete when you're in the throng of capitalist competition amongst all these businesses and you're only a small outfit. But um, I guess one way that you could possibly lower your costs is by by bringing in the, the, the cheapness of cooperative living, like some of our housing co-ops are set up to... Uh, to support low-income people, and and you could maybe set up your own housing co-op to for so that your members don't have to pay as much, and thus they sort of need less to live. Is is that one of the ways you're thinking? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we've got some of our organisers are working quite closely with uh, Common Equity Housing Limited, which oversees a lot of the cooperative housing. Um, you know, and there's definitely a, a dream among some of our organisers to set up our own you know, co-housing and, and cooperative housing projects. Um, yeah, again, like looking at the Evergreen Cooperative in the US, uh, I was listening just yesterday to somebody talking about how they, through a partnership with um, local government, I think it was, 
you know, they're able to get their worker owners into a house that they will own outright in five years, um, you know, just through, like, these partnerships and, and, you know, taking small deductions from their wages to pay for those houses. Um, yeah, which is, you know, something that most people I know at least, like, wouldn't dream of trying to own their own home in five years, um, yeah, but there are ways that you can do it. feasible, does it? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, I it suppose seems... individually it's probably not. Yeah, um, but, yeah, just, you know, I guess, like, using the, the cooperative as a whole to, like, build these relationships and also to, like, um, take out loans where necessary and and to, yeah, to provide capital outright um, at times, you know. So in the future, yeah, that's definitely something that we would love to do. Yeah, nice, nice. Now, um, David Ellerman, who is a, uh, he's a, I don't know, an economic philosopher, I suppose, for want of a better word, from the US, he, he talks about the ownership of, uh, he's talking about the ownership of people and how men used to own their wives and the whole property-based legal system sort of leaning towards that and the slavery sort of arguments last century. And he reckons that uh, the employment contract means that we're still slaves, but we're only being rented and not owned outright. So so what's the idea for the employment contract from, from the Earthworker Co-ops? Will, will you have one or will there be some other sort of membership type of structure? Um, well, so for the, the worker-owned cooperatives, yes. you know, the, the workers are their own employers. Um, they make the decisions about wages and conditions. Um, yes, yeah, so they, you know, I guess... They are owning themselves. They are renting their own labour um, mm. and under whatever conditions they choose to do that. Um, as a, a whole, we, uh, you know, especially given that we've come out of the union movement, like we would always kind of have uh, union agreements and, um, you know, award standards as a as a backstop. So we're not going to be undercutting those sorts of conditions <laughs> um, <laughs> as our own bosses. Uh, but, yeah, I guess, like, you know, ideally with workers in control and, you know, for any um, employment contracts we enter into outside of those worker owners, you know, working very closely with unions, um, ideally it will not be any kind of not, wage slavery. Not really be an issue, yes, I suppose. When you put it like that, the type of contract you have really becomes irrelevant, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I mean, you know, it does mean David that Ellerman. workers can be more flexible, you know, in a good year they can pay themselves bonuses at the end of the year and, you know, in a bad year they can say, well, actually, we're only going to work three days a week. Uh, it means we've all still got a job, but, you know, it means the business stays afloat. That's right, and I've paid off my house in five years already, so... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, cool. Now, another sort of slightly oblique concept here is is uh, to do with worker-owned businesses is, is superannuation. So, yeah, I mean, I've heard people like Dave Karen having a bit of a yarn about this one, who's another earth worker speaker, Um have you got any thoughts on superannuation and how the workers actually are owning an enormous amount of the economy already? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, when when you look at it closely, like superannuation is money that workers have earned um, that really belongs to those workers. uh, And it's put into giant funds and used for all sorts of projects. Um, You know, I believe that that's money that we should be saying, well, that's, that's our money. We want to decide where it goes. We want to decide the sort of projects it works on. You know, it's a huge pool of money. If that um, money was put towards financing renewable energy, for example, you know, we could do things that are otherwise impossible in our current political and economic climate. Yeah, um, something like $2 trillion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely something that's really worth considering and that I think people should be thinking about. You know, if you have been working a full-time job for 20, 30 years, then there's, you've got a stake in that, <laughs> you know? You do. You have a large chunk of that money that you don't actually, most people have no idea where it's going. No, no, it's true. It's true. could be doing anything, war machines or coal-fired power or nuclear. Yep. All the good ones. Yep. Yeah. So does Earthworker have any sort of vague future ideas of, of maybe setting up a divestment superannuation fund or something to try and gather some of that huge pool of money and use it? Um, oh, there's, been, there's been talks. You know, some of the people that we work with in our broader networks uh, have talked about setting up self-managed super funds or, yeah, setting up some kind of alternative super fund um, yeah, I don't know at this stage quite how that will work, yeah. uh, but it is certainly something that we have thought about. It's on the radar, yes. Yeah. Seems like a, a very nice fit, doesn't it, really? Yeah. I guess to put it in perspective, the 2015 government expenses are $434 billion, so $2 trillion, <laughs> that's, that's four years of government spending. It's quite a lot of money. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. All right, well, is there anything else that you'd like to add before we wrap up? Um, I guess just, you know, if people are interested, jump online and and have a look, you know, get on our mailing list. Um, Yeah, we really would love more people to get involved and to spread the word, you know, become a member and tell your friends and and family. Um, If we've got a big membership base, then we've got a lot more power, um, you know, and we're really trying to build up a movement. You know, we're also a very broad church, so we don't, you know, we have people from across the political spectrum. Um, what we're looking at is outcomes. You know, we don't, you don't have to subscribe to a particular ideology. We just, we want to be acting on climate change and acting on job security and, you know, empowering local communities. Um, and those are the outcomes that we're seeking rather than any particular ideology. So, yeah, get involved and spread the word. All right, cool. Well, uh, Anna, you'll have to do it, Anna. (laughs) Anna Boddenberg. Anna Boddenberg, thank you very much from Earthworker in Melbourne currently, but shortly to take over the world. (laughs) Maybe. Thank you very much (laughs) for having me today. Okay, no worries. (laughs) Thank you again.